the word neighbor, my mind immediately jumps to a song. And I grew up listening to this song while I watched one of my favorite childhood shows. And the lyrics, many of you will recognize, they go like this. It's a beautiful day in this neighborhood, a beautiful day for a neighbor. Would you be mine? Could you be mine? It's a neighborly day in this beauty wood, a neighborly day for a beauty. Would you be mine? Could you be mine? I've always wanted to have a neighbor just like you. I've always wanted to live in a neighborhood with you. So let's make the most of this beautiful day. Since we're together, we might as well say, would you be mine? Could you be mine? Won't you be my neighbor? Won't you please, won't you please, please, won't you be my neighbor? Now I have a confession to, uh, to make. I asked my six-year-old daughter on our trip this week if she knew who Mr. Rogers was and that song, and she looked at me with a blank stare, and so I failed, all right? So uh, she had no clue. Well, we had a neighbor growing up. His name was Mr. Johnson. Mr. Johnson was one of the, the nicest men that I've ever met in my life. He was kind. He, uh, he was firm. Uh, he, he allowed parameters to be known of, uh, I have two brothers, so as us three were growing up, he, he made it very clear when we could enter onto his property and when we could not enter onto his property. Uh, he, was, uh, he was always very inviting, but if he had asked us to stay away, he made that very clear. Uh, and so there would be times that we would throw that baseball or football or soccer ball or whatever ball we were playing with over the fence, and there would be days he'd be like, oh, I'll go ahead and get it. And then there would be other days he's like, my dogs will not be happy if you come get that, so please don't come on my yard. Well, Mr. Johnson, again, he's an older gentleman, and uh, he was a, a, a member of a of, of Baptist church. He always invited us to go to VBS with him. But, but the thing I remember about Mr. Johnson is, is he would always invite us into his little workshop in his backyard. He'd just be sitting there, and he would whittle away, or he'd work on something. And he would never tell us what he was working on. That's not why he invited us in. He would just ask us about our life and asked us what we were doing, what sports we were playing, what we were doing at church, what we were learning, if we were obeying mom and dad. He was just, he was such a very kind neighbor. I'll never forget, we went away for Christmas vacation one year and we came back and there was a brand new basketball goal that had been cemented into the ground and it was up and I was like, wow, man, how, dad, how did that basketball go up here while we were gone, you know? And he's like, well, Mr. Johnson took time out of his vacation to, to, to put that up for us while we were gone so you could have it as a surprise when you got back. Like, just a very, very kind gentleman. And maybe you've had neighbors like that, and, and maybe you haven't, but I will always remember how Mr. Johnson treated me and my brothers. Now, for many in our culture, the question, please won't you be my neighbor, is not asked very Often, As a matter of fact, many would rather not know who their neighbor is, and they definitely uh, do not want to be bothered by a meaningful relationship with them. As a matter of fact, we live in a culture where religion and politics, race and economics directly determine how or even if we are going to love our neighbor. However, our text this morning is going to teach us not only who our neighbor is, but most importantly, how to love our neighbor according to Jesus and his countercultural worldview. So I want us to begin reading in, past, uh, in Luke chapter 10. We'll start in verse 25. We're just going to work ourselves through this passage. And first we're going to do is we're going to set the scene for our life lesson this morning. Verse 25 reads, And a lawyer stood up, and put him to the test, saying, 
So we find ourselves getting a glimpse into listening into Jesus preaching to a group of people. I, I think it would be safe for us to assume that the group of people consisted of his disciples, of, of Jewish religious leaders of the day, as well as others who were just kind of within earshot. Now, some scholars believe Jesus is actually teaching in the synagogue, and, and others think he could be teaching on the actual road to Jericho. Uh, We don't know this for certain, but we do know that there was a lawyer in the crowd as he was the one who stood up to ask a question. He was actually uh, attempting to test Jesus' knowledge concerning eternal life. And so the lawyer in this story would be a man with excellent credentials. He, he would be an expert on God's law. He would try to obey the law the best that he could as an example to others. As a matter of fact, he would even be one who would help administer justice within the Jewish system. Now, this lawyer, he would be highly respected. Why? Due to his expertise and, and how he lived out his life. And so when he stood to speak, people listened. So when we think of the Jewish religious of the day of Christ, we think of what? Piety. And, and we, we always, it always seems that they were trying to trap Jesus into, uh, into getting him to stumble on the questions that they asked. Well, well here in Luke 10, 10 25, this uh, certainly could have been the case. But it also could be that the lawyer wanting to test Jesus' knowledge of the law. And I believe it's both. I believe there's a, uh, a desire to get him to attempt to stumble, but also a real question. So we've kind of set the scene of where we are this morning, and so let's now look at the actual testing of the teacher. Verses 26 through 28 read, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And he said to him, What is written in the law? And how does it read to you? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this, and you will live. So by addressing Jesus as teacher, the the lawyer here affirms that Jesus is a teacher of Scripture, but his questioning leads us to believe that he's trying to point the crowd away from Jesus and back to whom he thinks should be giving the lesson, and that would be the religious leaders of the day. The lawyer believes, listen, there's no way this uneducated teacher could possibly be able to answer this question according to the Mosaic law because, hey, I'm the expert in it. Jesus is not. Well, he asked that question, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Well, this question in essence is this, how is one saved? This is the same question that the rich young ruler brought to Jesus. This is the question that many of us have asked as well. And you know what? It's a really great question. However, Jesus is going to answer this question with his own question. And now it needs to be noted, Jesus in no way was intimidated by this expert. He was not phased by this question, but instead he used it as an opportunity to do what? To point out the true way of inheriting eternal life opposed to what the religious leaders of the day were teaching. So Jesus returned the question to the lawyer when he states, what is written in the law, how does it read to you? Man, the lawyer believes Jesus has walked right into his trap. 
I can kind of see him beaming with pride as he's about to respond to Jesus' question. If you've asked, ever asked a little child a question and, and you know they know the answer, they get what? They get really giddy and excited, like they can't wait to tell you, and like, I'm going to show you all my knowledge and you're going to be wowed by me. That's how I kind of think this, this lawyer is like, oh, I am, I'm about to put this guy Jesus in his rightful place. Well, the lawyer answers this way, you shall love the Lord your God again with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And what he does is he actually cites two Old Testament texts, he, uh, Deuteronomy 6.5 and Leviticus 19.18. And in his mind, man, he has nailed the answer to this question. This is how you inherit eternal life. How is Jesus going to respond to this? And here's the deal. I love the response from Jesus. He says this, you have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. Man, the lawyer, he receives an A plus on his own test. Jesus affirms that his answer is correct, but Jesus does what Jesus does. He takes a moment to teach God's truth here as well. The answer is correct. Now do this and you will live. And in that moment, the lawyer's face goes from pride to beginning to become red with a little bit of anger. Why, you ask? Well, the lawyer's answer is scripture. So how can this be used against him? Well, we must catch the context of this scripture to understand Jesus's answer. The answer, do this. Well, what was he supposed to do? Love the Lord your God with, and this is a circle point in your Bible, all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind. This one important word, which is all-encompassing, gives us the clue to why this lawyer's answer is not going to help anyone obtain eternal life. You see why no one can keep this scripture No one can do all of this. Why? Because we are sinful. We have never and will never in our sinfulness be able to uphold the Mosaic law and specifically these two-sided scriptures. Why? All means all. There is not a deep Greek or Hebrew or Aramaic. There's no, no depth to this answer other than the fact that it means all, everything. Do this Do it all, Jesus answered. The lawyer in his heart knows as hard as he has tried that he has not been able to keep this perfectly. The lawyer's response to Jesus' response allows us to see the change from proud to angry when he attempts to justify himself by asking, Who is my neighbor? You see, no matter how hard we attempt or, or, or how good we think we're doing by portraying that, that we're doing everything right according to Scripture, the truth is, listen, we are not. And you know, when we're saved, we're changed, we begin to live under the power of the Holy Spirit, and He molds us. We'll talk about that here in a few minutes. But listen, there is not one person in this room who has ever walked this earth other than Jesus Christ, who has lived out this law perfectly. So the lawyer is attempting to justify himself because the first question and answer didn't go so well. So he's going to try to test Jesus again in hopes of redeeming himself and hoping Jesus falters on the next question. But before we get to that question, 
Let us be clear, in no way can any one of us keep the law of Moses, nor can we keep from sinning, but why? But by the grace of God. Romans 3.23, for all have sinned. There's that word again. Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death. Listen, not eternal life. No, the wages, the penalty of that sin that we've all done is death. However, it's the gift of God that is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So, so once we're saved and we've inherited eternal life, then the great things happen. We can, we can hope to obtain Christ's righteousness and, and holiness, knowing that he will mold us, he'll mature us into the believer, the disciple that he desires for us to be. But listen, even in our salvation, we will still sin against our holy God. And this lawyer, as much as he wanted to, could have never perfectly kept the law. Therefore, he had no hope of eternal life, except through this same Jesus that was standing in front of him, conversing with him. So now let's re-engage that second question. And this really is the heart of the sermon today. Remember earlier I stated this, we live in a culture where religion, politics, race, and economics directly determine how or even if we are to love our neighbor. However, our text today is going to teach us not only who our neighbor is, but most importantly, how we love our neighbor according to Jesus and his worldview, his scripture, his way. And this is where we as believers learn this valuable life lesson from Jesus in the book of Luke. Verse 29 says this, but wishing to justify himself, he said to Jesus, the lawyer, and who is my neighbor? Man, the lawyer is going to attempt to win this debate with a technicality. Don't we see that in our court system all the time today? Get off on the technicality, right? Well, this lawyer was no different. Although he was a religious lawyer, he was thinking, man, I'm going to be able to get by with this. And he quotes Leviticus 19.18. You shall not take vengeance nor bear any grudge against the sons of your people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself... I am the Lord. Now, see, the Jew would interpret loving your neighbor as loving your fellow Jew, and that would take care of fulfilling this law. Now, the lawyer, again, would think that he has Jesus right where he wants him, and and he's thinking, I'm going to squeak this debate out on this technicality because I'm loving my Jewish brothers well. But Jesus is no stranger to Old Testament Scripture. He's no stranger to the Mosaic Law. As a matter of fact, Jesus doesn't even respond with Old Testament Scripture. Instead, he's going to teach and use a parable that will hit home, and it's going to illustrate some Scriptures that this lawyer actually left out of who your neighbor is. You see, he was trying to get by on a technicality on how he defined neighbor. Listen to some of these scriptures that the lawyer didn't cite. Deuteronomy 10.18. He executes justice for the orphan and the widow and shows his love for the alien by giving him food and clothing. Leviticus 24.22. There shall be one standard for you. It shall be for the stranger as well as the native, for I am the Lord your God. Numbers 15.15 and 16. As for the assembly... There shall be one statute for you and for the alien who sojourns with you, a perpetual statute throughout your generations as you are. So shall the alien be before the Lord. There is to be one law and one ordinance for you and for the alien who sojourns with you. So we've seen Deuteronomy 10.18, Leviticus 24.22, 
Numbers 15, 15 through 16. Then we find ourselves in Deuteronomy 1, verse 16. Then I charge your judges at that time, saying, Hear the cases between your fellow countrymen, and judge righteously between a man and his fellow countrymen, or the alien who is with him. And then we come to the clincher. Leviticus 19.34 The stranger who resides with you shall be to you as the native among you, and you shall love him as yourself, for you were aliens in the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. How conveniently this lawyer who knows these scriptures, how convenient that he left them out. And although not practiced by the Jew, the neighbor would be Jew or Gentile. And, and Jesus will point this out in our parable today. And, and so we've set the scene this morning. We, we have witnessed the testing of the teacher. And now we get to experience the sharing of the story by Jesus as he answers this question, Who is my neighbor? Now, Jesus does this. He shares the story with what is known as a parable. And if you have been a believer for any length of time or uh, you have attended church or, or even uh, growing up in Sunday school or Bible study, you have a familiarity with what a parable is. But if you're brand new to the faith or new to attending church, you, you may not know. So I think it would be great just to give a very basic understanding, definition. It's very simple of what a parable is. It is an earthly story with a heavenly meaning. An earthly story with a heavenly meaning. And so Jesus did not initially use these in the beginning of his ministry, but at some point he began to. And the parables were such a contrast to his initial teaching that his disciples actually asked him in Matthew thirteen ten, why do you speak to the people in parables? And so we see that there are about 35 of these parables shared within the synoptic gospels. In this story, known as the parable of the Good Samaritan, Jesus, he's going to use four characters to get his point across. And this parable is used to answer that second question, who is my neighbor? And it allows you and me to hear this answer, and it also allows us to understand how we should apply this parable and its principles to our lives as believers. So we have the first character that we see spoken of in verse 30. And it reads, Jesus replied and said, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell among robbers, and they stripped him and beat him and went away, leaving him half dead. So we have the man that's going down from Jerusalem. Now, we don't know much about this man other than he was on his way to Jericho from Jerusalem. We do know that that road from Jerusalem to Jericho was about 17 miles, and it was rugged and dangerous territory. We understand, excuse me, that the altitude decreased 3,000 feet and there were many caves and there were a lot of rocky places and that's where those thieves and robbers would hide. And, and we understand that uh, travelers of all economical status would go there. We know that uh, the very wealthy would travel there and so the travelers would, uh, would continuously be in danger. And so this man, as he's on his way down to Jericho, he is attacked and he's stripped He's robbed, he's beaten, and he's left behind to die. Now, a little side note of importance here, and, and maybe this is just for me this morning, and, and I have studied this passage for years, I've preached on it before, uh, but this is the first time that I've ever really noticed something, and I just wanted to share it with you because it's very important. Uh, when I was growing up, I always assumed that this man going down 
from Jerusalem that was beaten and stripped and robbed and left for dead that we had biblical confirmation that this man was a Jew. But the Bible does not provide that clarity. And it makes total sense when we think about it. It does not matter what race or nationality or status this man was or had. He represents the one in need of a neighbor to love him and show compassion towards him. So we have our traveler who is laying on the side of the road left for dead. And Jesus continues sharing the story and our passage introduces our next character. So we find ourselves and it says, And by a chance, by chance, a priest was going down on that road. And when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So now we have the priest who Jesus tells us passes right by. Now, what do we know about the priest? The priests were the highest of Jewish religious officials. And we know in this case that he doesn't just pass by. He actually moves to the other side of the road and passes by the dying man. And there's a lot of assumptions that we could make, but, but Jesus doesn't spend time giving us the reason why he passed. He simply makes this clear. The priest, the religious man, did not stop. He did not show love nor compassion, nor even inquire to the needs of this dying man lying on the side of the road. So Jesus utilizes the priest, someone the lawyer would know very, be very familiar with. But then Jesus continues sharing, and he introduces this third character. In verse 32 it reads, Likewise, a Levite also, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by it on the other side. And so we have a Levite whose responsibility was to take care of the temple. He was also a religious leader. He served in ministerial daily temple activities and rituals. So certainly this man, this religious man, would stop and help the Samaritan. But of course Jesus tells us that did not happen as he also passed by on the other side. So here we have two religious men who move to the other side of the road while passing by this man. Why? We do not know, but we again do know that God has commanded that the Jewish people love both their Jewish and Gentile neighbor. They are to meet their needs. So this parable is now beginning to hit home with this lawyer as well as others who are listening. But then Jesus comes to part of the story that will come as a shock to those who are listening. It reads, But a Samaritan who was on a journey came upon him. What do we know about the Jews and how they felt about the Samaritans? Well, a little background. The Assyrians defeated Israel. They dispersed the Israelites of the northern kingdom among the Gentile nations. They also brought foreigners into the land of Israel to repopulate the land. And so the result was a mixed race, half Jewish, half Gentile, that populated the northern kingdom of Israel from then on. Well, when the Babylonians took the southern kingdom of Judah captive, they did not intermingle the races, but kept the Jews separate. So pure Jews returned to Judah. So the Jews of Judah came to disdain the mixed-race Samaritans. Now, the Samaritans gave plenty of reasons to not be liked. That shouldn't have been one of them. But one was that they, uh, they gave those who returned from their Babylonian captivity much grief and opposition as they attempted to rebuild the city of Jerusalem, the walls, and the temple. And there was much hostility that included hate towards one another between Jews and Samaritans. So like Jesus in John chapter 4 
He makes it a point to go through Samaria where he encountered the woman at the well, a Samaritan woman. And she was surprised he even spoke to her. Yet Jesus not only spoke to her, what happened? He shared the gospel and he ministered to her. So when Jesus introduces the Samaritan into the parable, it gets the lawyer's attention even more. So how did this Samaritan respond to the man lying half dead on the road? Well, Jesus tells us. And when he saw him, underline this, he felt compassion. He felt compassion. Man, this word compassion, it's, it's, it's a Greek expression built on the word for a person's inner parts, the seat of emotions and feelings. It's, it's the heartbeat of Jesus' feeling for those in need. This is a true neighborly love that goes beyond cultural expectations. It is counter-cultural. And here's what it does. Compassion puts aside religious, racial, political, and economic differences to simply meet the extreme need of another. This is what Jesus showed the woman at the well. This compassion is what the father showed the son who had just returned from a life of debacle. This is the compassion, the emotion, the feeling of when the master cancels the massive debt. Listen, it is an act of love that comes from knowing the one, as we read earlier, who loved us first and showed the same for us. Listen this morning, folks. Our world needs more of this. It needs more compassion. And hey, I'm going to tell you this morning, the church needs more of this. Now, compassion, hear me well this morning, does not overlook sin. It speaks truth into sin. It speaks truth into the sinner. And it points them to Christ as the answer to overcome sin. It's a merciful grace, grace-filled act of love that does this. It heals the broken heart. It mends the broken relationships. It reaches out a helping, compassionate hand to even one's enemy. Compassion is an act. It's a movement. And we are to show compassion to our neighbor. Man, such a different response from the Samaritan than from the religious passers-by. Not only did the Samaritans show compassion, Jesus goes on with the story to tell us this. Let's pick up our, our passage. And came to him and bandaged up his wounds, pouring oil and wine on them. Now remember, the Samaritan, he was on a journey. He's the one that actually had purpose to be somewhere. The priest and the Levite, we didn't get that information from Jesus, but we get it from the Samaritan. He's on a journey. He's on his way somewhere. And he paused his journey to take care of this man. He bandaged the wounds. He used his own personal traveling items, which he needed for the trip. He used his own wine, his own oils. He literally went beyond inquiring to how the man was doing to actually putting compassion into action. You know what he didn't do? He didn't call someone else to help. He didn't just make sure he was okay. He physically ministered to him. You know, just the other night, I got a phone call at about 8 o'clock at night, and, and Drew's like, man, we got a problem. You never want to hear that when your son's out driving. And I'm like, man, what's up? And he's like, 
I, I just blew a tire. I'm like, oh, I was just flat. He's like, no, like there's no tire left. I'm like, oh, awesome. Okay. I said, where are you at? He's like, well, I'm happily, I'm actually just right around the corner uh, from the house. Can you just, and I was like, yeah, I'll be there in just a second. So get in my car. And man, by the time I'd gotten there, there was two guys that had already stopped. Two gentlemen on a Friday night at seven, eight o'clock. And man, I know they had places to be because of the way they were dressed. And they were standing there with both my boys looking at the situation and and man, they were showing compassion. No clue if they were believers. I know this is they stopped to help two young guys out. Didn't have to, but did. And so when I get there, I'm like, hey guys, man, I really appreciate you being here. Uh, but man, I just, I'm just going to call my insurance company. We got this taken care of and they'll be here in 45 minutes. No big deal. And they're like, no, 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 man, we're going to help y'all. And I was like, wow, that's really awesome, man. And I don't know if that was pride or compassion, but they really wanted to help it, right? And so the cool thing is, is we broke a couple tools, and they were like, okay, we're going we're gonna to go ahead and let you call the insurance company. Uh, and there was a lug nut on there we could not get off, man. And so, I mean, when you got, you got 260 strong standing on that thing jumping up, and it's not budging, nothing's going to move it. So, so we, we, we see this, and I'm so thankful that night that two men took time to show compassion to my boys, right? That's compassion. Putting a pause on your journey to check in on somebody, but then to act upon it. Pretty cool. Well, not only that, but Jesus continues to explain how the Samaritan showed compassion when he says this. And he put, on his, put him on his own beast and brought him to an inn and took care of him. The Samaritan, again, was on his own journey. But he paused his journey to take care of this man. He gave up his personal time to tend to this man in need. He cared for him. He was continuously compassionate. Then Jesus ends the story with the next verse, verse 35. On the next day, he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper and said, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, when I return, I will repay you. Listen, man, the Samaritan used his own money to pay for the man's stay in continuous care. This is loving your neighbor. I want... All of us, including myself, when I was writing this sermon, this thought pierced my heart because I know how true it is. It is not a compassionate thought which matters. It is the compassionate action that allows one's neighbor to know he is loved. It's not the compassionate thought that matters. It's the compassionate action that allows one's neighbor to know he is loved. Many times a compassionate thought, if you're like me, crosses our mind, yet we fail to act. Why? It might take too much time. It might cause me to get out of my comfort zone. Hey, man, others might look down on me, upon me. Are you filling the blank? But in setting the scene, we see the teacher tested. We see Jesus responds with sharing a story known as a parable. And at the end, he asks the lawyer for an answer in verse 36. And Jesus asks this. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell into the robber's hands? And he said, the one who showed mercy toward him. Jesus is specifically asking for an answer. He wants a response from this lawyer. And here's the deal. The lawyer knew the answer. He did not like the answer. As a matter of fact, he couldn't even bring himself to say the word Samaritan due to his disdain for them. He had not accomplished what he had set out to do, but he did provide the correct answer. The answer is this, the one who showed mercy. 
Boy, Jesus then provides the life lesson with his response in verse 37 when he states, are you ready? Then Jesus said to him, go and do the same. We must learn the life lesson ourselves. Who is our neighbor? Everyone. It does not matter the religion, the race, the political view, the economic status. The neighbor is the one who is in great need. What kind of great need? The great need of salvation. The great need in circumstances of life. This is a great lesson for us in 2023. We have allowed loving our neighbor to become loving those whom we like and whom we get along with. But when they believe differently or they look differently or they have a different political view or they live within a different tax bracket, higher or lower, then all of a sudden that command to go and do the same, what happened? It's ignored and shelved. And that is the farthest thing from what Jesus expects and teaches in this life lesson in Luke. Now, we again want to make sure this morning we have a strong understanding of this text and parable. Jesus actually tells the lawyer to do two things. Did you notice that? He asks two questions. He receives an action answer. Do this. Do this. Now, for some, we want to make sure that we don't assume Jesus is teaching a works-based salvation. As a matter of fact, he's doing just the opposite. Following the law perfectly and showing compassion on your neighbor is the to-do Jesus is not teaching the works-based salvation. He's using the lawyer's faulty work-based salvation to show him there is no way anyone can work their way to heaven or earn their way or keep the law perfectly. That's the point of doing the same. He's pointing out that without a Savior, without forgiveness of one's sins, without placing your faith and trust in the one who can do just that, you will never inherit eternal life. You will never be able to understand exactly who is your neighbor because here's the deal. You will always be looking through a flawed lens of religion instead of through the lens of relationship with the Messiah, Jesus Christ, the one who is the way, the truth, and the life. Now this morning you may be asking the question, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Well, Romans 10, 9 through 13, Scripture speaks very clearly and gives us the answer. It says in verse 9 of Romans 10 that if you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart a person believes, resulting in righteousness, and with the mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation, For the scripture says, whoever believes in him will not be disappointed, for there is no distinction between the Jew and the Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all, abounding in riches for all who call on him, for whoever will call on the name of the Lord, what does the Bible say, will be saved. This morning, you may be asking the question, who is my neighbor? You know, this morning, that neighbor is the person that's sitting right next to you, as well as the person who you might be standing in line with at the grocery store, as well as the person you might have been feuding with for years. Religion, race, politics, economics, 
does not give us the right to not respond to the words of Jesus. Go and do the same. So how do we close this this morning? We look at how to go and do the same. We have an application as an audience this morning. I am part of that audience. I am practicing applying this to my life so that I might be a great father, a great husband, a great shepherd, a great follower of Christ, one who wants to bring glory to him. And I think we would all be well to carry out these five characteristics of compassion towards our neighbor. And here they are. The good Samaritan, he did this, he opened his eyes. All three men physically saw the critically wounded man, but only the Samaritan looked and stopped to help. Before we can meet needs, we must be aware of them, and we are only aware of them if we are seeing them and we're intentionally looking for them. He opened his heart. What was the difference between the priest and the Levite's gaze and the Samaritan's gaze? It was this. It was compassion. The Samaritan saw that helpless and suffering of the di- helplessness and suffering of the dying man, and his heart went out to him. And even though he knew that pausing on that dangerous road could result in being attacked and robbed himself, his compassion overruled his caution. Instead of being preoccupied with his own safety, he focused on the suffering of another. So what did he do? He opened his eyes, he opened his hearts, but he also opened his hands. I love this. The Samaritan didn't just feel sorry for this poor man. He relived, I'm sorry, relieved his suffering by how? By pouring oil and wine on his wounds and bandaging them. But if he had merely just treated the wounds and left him on the road, it wouldn't have been much help. However, the Samaritan didn't leave him behind. What did he do? He took him by his hands. He lifted him onto his donkey. He brought him to the nearest inn and he took care of him. He opened his eyes, his heart, he opened his hands, but he also opened his wallet. Since the Samaritan was on a journey, he needed to continue traveling, even though the injured man needed time to recover. But instead of just simply dropping him off and leaving him, the Samaritan paid the innkeeper to look after him. But then he promised to return and repay him for whatever more he had to spend for this man's care. This is compassion. He opened his eyes, his heart, his hands, his wallet, But this is the last one is where it gets me. And maybe you're in the same place. Or maybe you have this one done well. But he opened his schedule. Man, the Samaritan was willing to have his trip interrupted in order to offer aid to that robber on the side of the road. I mean, to that uh, dying man on the side of the road. He put his journey on hold for a while in order to do that which was more important. Show compassion and care to someone in need. Man, he opened his eyes, his heart, his hands, his wallet, his schedule. Man, five characteristics of compassion that you and I, as believers in Jesus Christ, can carry out as well. What we see in the Good Samaritan is genuine Christ-like attitude of the heart, which is the felt compassion. Today, listen, we don't lack opportunities to practice these characteristics, do we? But we must first see the needs, feel compassion. Be willing to be inconvenienced in order to give our time and resources to help. As we, all, as we allow the love of Jesus to flow through our hearts, we will understand more and more what it means to love our neighbor. So listen this morning, all of us, let us go and do the same. Go and do the same this morning, this week, and until the return 
of Christ. Let us love our neighbors well for the glory of Christ. Let us pray. God, we love you. We thank you for this opportunity to worship together this morning. We thank you for your word and its truths. Lord, I pray that we will be a people not just of compassionate thought, but of compassionate action. And Lord, that for the one here this morning who's asking the question how to inherit eternal life, we pray they heard your truth, that your spirit is calling them unto you and that they will respond in faith by placing that faith and trust in you, by repenting of their sin, calling out to you to be the Lord of their life. Lord, for the one who's asking the question of who is my neighbor, I pray that we just simply look to your scripture. We look around and we see that it's everyone that you put before us. God, let Fellowship Bible and the individuals who are here this morning be a church and be a people that are compassionate and love our neighbors well. We love you, Jesus. Amen.